two case studies and then sort of what we can learn from this. Uh, but I thought I'd start by just talking a little bit about why you might do these things or what some of the uh, issues are surrounding it. Um, I think a lot of us in history museums are uh, kind of questioning and embracing the possibilities of incorporating visitor feedback and user-generated information in our exhibition presentations. I mean, this has been going on for some time and a lot of talking about it. Um, I think more recently there's been more kind of um, specific information. Um, I don't know if any of you have read Nina Simon's uh, The Participatory Museum. That's a really good place to start, and it's online, so you can go find it uh, very easily. Uh, Letting Go by the Pew Trust uh, is another source for delving deeper into ideas and case studies about visitor participation. Um, so I just wanted to kind of define that, uh, use Nina Simon's definition, which she says that uh, compares traditional museum exhibits and programs as the institution providing content to visitors to consume versus the idea of an institution serving as a platform that connects different um, users who act as content creators, distributors, consumers, critics, and collaborators. So it's opening um, that up. Um, I don't think that there's consistent, I mean, I think people have a lot of hesitation about this, these techniques. Uh, on her blog, um, and if uh, we're the, um, on the posting of the uh, book itself, there are comments back, and I thought I'd use a few of those uh, just to sort of talk about the angst that people feel. Uh, one said, can and should we trust people to provide us with the information regarding our past who are not qualified and do not necessarily know what they are talking about? Good question. Uh, another person said, I think the idea of participatory culture that you explore is an interesting one and certainly reflects on the experiences we have online, but remain wary about its limitations. Um, and another said, is everybody's opinion of equal value? And um, although as historians we debate about opinion and perspective and cite these two components as being integral to the study of history, but does that really mean all perspectives are equal? Is there really no truth? So this really gets to the heart of who we are as historians, as interpreters of history. Um, Nina Simon also actually points out that um, history museums may be best suited for this kind of interaction because of the kind of information that we are uh, putting out and the idea of multiple perspectives. So your visitor is another perspective. Uh, we, we do things with genealogy, family history, uh, we're doing oral histories. It's kind of part of our practice and yet I think we're still uncomfortable about how to incorporate that. But she also says that the challenge, which I think we all experience as well, is that history me museums also feel strongly about accuracy and authenticity. So how do you balance voice and authenticity? And um, the idea of multivocal content um, as opposed to being the source of information. So today's session is going to look at how participation in history museums can may be able to lead to dialogue as one of the goals for this kind of participation. Um, and um, the uh, two projects, one is at a National Park Service site and John Rudy uh, to my right. Um, I'm going to introduce them and then we can just flow through. Um, John offers training opportunities to National Park Service staff at all levels. He works actively with the field in digital interpretation. 
Um, and he has been um, working with National Park Service interpreters to add dialogue to the interpretation. And he's going to be introducing some of the work that they're doing, but also explain uh, what was the site um, and how the uh, Women's Rights National Historic Park um, was, has used TalkBack. Um, I'm going to be filling in for Pete Mealy from the Gettysburg Seminary Ridge Museum because he was unable to attend and talk about the work that has been done there. And then Josh Howard on my left is uh, a student at finishing up a uh, PhD at Middle Tennessee State University. He has a background in both statistics and history uh, and is um, working with both these sites uh, as to analyze the visitor data that has been collected from these talkback boards as part of his own research on public interactions with history. So he's going to be sharing his research. Uh, and I hope that we will be able to leave a lot of time for some discussion uh, to be able to include some of the uh, concerns and questions and even uh, experiences that you all have had. Uh, so we're going to start with John. Beautiful. Thank you, Barbara. And um, so I am a interpretive philosopher. I know that's a really squishy term. Uh, technically, I'm a park ranger and interpretive trainer, but uh, I'm, I'm a thinky person. I, I go into the, the weird realm of ideas and how culture is shifting. And culture is shifting. We're in the midst of almost continual culture shift. Uh, one of the ways that I love to, to phrase this, I've stolen this, is we are moving from read-only culture to read-write culture. I'm a tech geek, so we're moving from read-only CD-ROMs to read-write CD-ROMs. We're, we're moving from a, a broadcast culture to a dialogue culture. And we can see this around us all the time. Um, the concept of the comment box, the, the share button, uh, the social learning environments that we all live within, the streams, the feeds, the different, uh, well, these machines that sit in front of us constantly and tell us what's going on in the broader world. They've, they've rewired how our culture interacts. So we have to pay attention to that. And that's one of the things that the group that I work with, the Interpretive Development Program, does. We pay attention to how culture is shifting. And we're trying to be reactive and proactive and, and help visitors to really find relevance within park resources. We, are, uh, we sort of see ourselves as an innovative pressure within the National Park Service. Uh, we are a laboratory. We can pilot new techniques. We can try new modes of communication, and then we're charged, after we figure these things out, with teaching folks how to use them. Um, we are the training division of the Park Service. I work in Harper's Ferry, which means I'm next door to John Brown, but I don't get to talk about John Brown all that much. I'm more talking about how we talk about John Brown, which is kind of cool. The Park Service has a couple of partners that we work with in this type of work. And one of the biggest that we've wor been working with recently is the International Coalition of the Sites of Conscience. How many of you have heard of the coalition? All right, those of you that haven't, you can go to sitesofconscience.org to hear all about them. They were founded in 1999, and uh, they're basically a collaborative, collective group of museums. They started out with, I believe, nine sites, and they've grown to hundreds at this point who are all partners. We, a few of our sites, were some of those keystone partners that started out the coalition, um, including women's rights, uh, including Seneca Falls, where certainly a site of conscience needs to be. 
uh, where crucial questions about who is a member of our community, our society, our democracy happened in the 1840s and can still happen today. And that's the crucial part of understanding the work that we're talking about today, is we're not talking about the past. Yes, we're talking about the past, but we're not talking about the past. We're talking about serving visitors where they are, helping visitors to make a usable past, to find lessons in the past that apply to their daily lives today. The, the first document actually was a fax that was sent around to individual sites to get them on board. That tells you exactly the period it was made in when fax <laughs> was in vogue. It wasn't an email. And um, among the tenets that it had, it, it had this. I want to read it because it's really powerful. It is the obligation of historic sites to assist the public in drawing connections between the history of our sites and their contemporary implications. We view stimulating dialogue on pressing social issues and promoting humanitarian and democratic values as a primary function. A primary function. Those two words are really crucial in my understanding at least of what we're talking about. Um, our primary function among them is this question of modern society. How do we, how do we face the challenges that American democracy is facing. We live in a democracy that it's getting harder and harder to have conversations with each other because MSNBC and Fox News and CNN are all showing us that a dialogue is screaming at two people and not listening. How can we repair that? How can we help citizens to again have an impulse to listen as well as to talk? Beyond that, how can we help society be more just, be more um, accepting, be more understanding? And this is fundamentally a different job than much of the field, much of the park rangers out there have conceptualized their job in the past. We're moving from idealizing these places as educational institutions to moving them more towards democratic catalysts. We aren't going to be teaching as much as we're going to be inspiring. We're not going to be teaching as much as we're going to be, um, well, pushing people to think in weird and wild and new ways, pushing them to listen to their fellow citizens and see the world through their eyes. Radical empathy is far more important than necessarily teaching. These machines we've got in front of us, the, the laptops, the, the cell phones, and whatever comes next, have shifted how our brains work. We don't need to build hard drive capacity any longer. We've got access to all the data. We are in a golden age of newspaper research. We're in a golden age of census research. We can access anything we want. And it's only going to get better. And when I've got that in my pocket, I can access it when I need it. This is talking about shifting beyond stuffing facts into someone's brain, building hard drive capacity, to building a, um, building a processor speed, building your capacity for citizenship. At least that's what the National Park Service is looking for. We are a civic organization. We're funded by you guys, by your tax dollars. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we want to make America a better place. What does this look like in practice? It's very simple. Shut up and listen. Okay, it's really easy to say that. It's much harder to put that into practice. Shut up and listen. That The concept of, of really listening to an audience is uh, it's tough to wrap your hands around when for literally a century, my organization has been a broadcaster. 
We have stood on a stage and told you, this is why this tree is important. This is why this cannon is important. This is why this house is important. This is why this pen that's sitting on this table is important. I can interpret my way out of a paper bag. (laughs) But I don't want to necessarily do that anymore. I want you to interpret your way out of a paper bag. Not necessarily why I think this is important, or why we think, as a society, as an agency, think this is important, but why do you think it's important? To me, this pen was held by Abraham Lincoln when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. To you, it could mean any number of different weird and wild things. I know, it's a bic, so don't, don't hold me to that one, and, and don't try to steal it out of my pocket later. But you might see this as a, a tool of revolution, a tool of, uh, of inspiration, uh, an, an item that reminds you that you're a blogger. All of those are valid meanings behind this, and all i got to do is ask you about what this means to you in order to elicit those. We're looking at a gradated suite of experiences. A lot of you have probably experienced these technologies, these easy techniques in museums before. In fact, one of the ones we're going to be talking about today is a very easy technique. Probably all of your museums or sites use it someplace. There's a board with a question on it, and then probably sticky notes that people stick up there and answer the question. Dead simple to do. But we're looking now at how do we embed this in the whole the whole experience. Not just when they come upon that board at the end of an exhibit, midway through an exhibit, but how do they do it in personal services? How do we do this on the house tour? How do we do this on the battlefield? How do we do this standing where they signed the Declaration of Independence, one of the most crucial places and obvious places to have a dialogue about, well, dialogue. Sometimes it looks really similar to what you're used to feeling in a historic place. And I'm a personal services person. I love park ranger tours. I love wandering around a place with somebody. Um, In fact, I love wandering around a place with a bunch of somebodies. And that's really what we're starting to focus on, is it's not me wandering around with a dude in a flat hat. It's me wandering around with a bunch of somebodies and getting to know those bunch of somebodies, citizens, citizens of the world, citizens of the United States, whoever they may be. We intersperse, we still talk about the stuff, because you got to talk about the stuff, because we are places of stuff, of trees, of houses, of cannons, of pens. But what we're trying to do is take that stuff and start to intersperse open-ended questions, opportunities for me to shut up and listen. This is a very structured environment. And part of the reason that we're going to get that is because our workforce is used to extremely structured environments. How many of you have been on a park ranger tour before? Okay, a good chunk of you. (laughs) And you know that it's, go here, talk about this, go here, talk about this, go here, talk about this. We've been training people to do that for 100 years. And it takes a hell of a lot of work to untrain that. So we're starting in baby steps. We're starting incrementally. And it's really hard to plan for this. Because, uh, so Helmut von Moltke, if I can get the name right, um, I'm a military historian, but not necessarily a World War I. Helmut von Moltke once said that no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. I'm not talking about (laughs) about the visitors as enemies, but it's illustrative, right? You can't plan this out, especially if you're shutting up and listening. Especially, 
Especially if you want to elicit real reaction from someone, the only thing you can plan is your first question. After that, you gotta dance. You gotta play jazz. You gotta push the boundaries and ask something you might not have been prepared to ask. You have to understand what's going on around you in the world. How many of you have read this? That's what I thought. This is the Forward Through Ferguson report that came out earlier this week. It's an amazing report. As public historians, as interpreters, we've got to be abreast of what's going on in our culture just as much as we are abreast of what went on in theirs, in the dead people's culture. We've got to know where our visitors are living, where they're coming from, how they're living, and what's on their mind, what they're worried about, so that we can be ready when they come to us and say, I'm worried about this. We need to genuinely listen, genuinely care about what's coming out of their mouths. Because if you genuinely care and you're genuinely listening, that means you can be ready to ask the next question, the next interrogating question, to get deeper and deeper and deeper into understanding who our fellow citizens are. And it's a skill. Asking open-ended questions is very tough. And sometimes we've defined these very badly. We've defined an open-ended question as, if you were a slave in the 1850s, would you run away from your master? <laughs> well, okay, that's a cool, interesting question. But I don't have any of the tools to answer that. First of all, I'm a short, fat, white dude from New York. I am not a slave in the 1850s. I've never felt a lash on my back or the weight of shackles on my hands. I can't answer that question. But I can answer questions like, when have you felt overwhelming pressure in your life? When have you felt the desire to run away from everything? Those are open-ended questions that I can start going, oh, wow, yes. I have done that. I have felt that. I have felt sorrow and joy and laughter and anger. The same that the people of the past might have as well. And you can see how after we have a great conversation about when you felt you wanted to run away and when you felt you wanted to run away and when you felt you wanted to run away, then we can go, okay, well, this slave ran away. And here's the reasons afterwards in his autobiography he wrote that he wanted to building kinship with the past, building analogy of experience is crucial to, to helping people care about these places. And if they don't care about them, well, for some of you that work at private sites, they're never going to drop money in the donation box and then you're going to go belly up. For us, in the National Park Service, if people don't care about these sites, they're going to drop letters in the mail to D.C. and we're going to go belly up. <laughs> and we're going to lose these crucial places. We're going to lose the Independence Halls, the Liberty Bells, the Stonewall Inns, and all of the future historic places that we can salvage and save. <clears throat> Questions, those, that question I asked, you noticed it was independent of the resource. It didn't matter exactly where we were for the question. Those are the ones that seem to work the best. Questions that ask about the visitor, that focus on the visitor. And then you allow the resource to inform it. First, it informs you on what questions you might be asking. And certainly, that's informing the questions that are being asked at women's rights. But then also, it's informing how the conversation goes. Little tidbits of the past can give visitors handholds 
on which to hang their own emotions, to hang their own lives, their own experiences. We want to take these modern moments and the moments of the past and find ways to link them together, to show that they're not so different from us. Those dead people, you know, the past is a foreign country, but they still eat ketchup there. That's what it is. It's about saying the struggle of the past, the struggle that's fought in Seneca Falls in the 1840s, is the same damn struggle we're having today. Might be a different flavor, but it's still ice cream. <coughs> Might be a different uh, tone, but we're still playing the same game. This report, I've been reading it over the course of the last couple days, and it's amazing. It was built through listening honest and open listening. I want to read you a chunk from it. And so we listened. At open community meetings all across the region, we invited people to speak. We had the opportunity to hear from people from communities throughout the region, from a variety of diverse backgrounds, of all ages, from all walks of life. This commitment to community engagement meant that we consistently got a raw view of what life was like for people in neighborhoods like Ferguson and that we never forgot about the people who our policies were meant to serve. Then another chunk. If change is to happen, we first have to have a culture of trying. In trying, new coalitions will be built, and a new sense of community will be developed. As the reason tries together, People will learn new things from each other and generate new ideas they never would have come up with if they had said, that's too risky to try, or better to leave well enough alone, or worst of all, that'll never work here. <clears throat> the idea of a culture of trying is not new. Our opportunity in this moment is to apply that culture to the uncomfortable realities we've set aside for far too long. If we listen to our visitors, we can face off against all of the uncomfortable realities, not just, in the case of Ferguson, embedded in systemic racism, but the ones that resonate at your places. Maybe this is it. Maybe it's women's rights, or reproductive rights, or suffrage around the globe, or the right to marry. Any of those things that are pressing in our culture, imagine if your place can become not just relevant, but essential to your visitors' understanding and to their answer to those questions. If you're essential, you're never going belly up. Thank you. Um, I'm going to uh, give a little introduction to one of the projects, um, which is um, at the Gettysburg Seminary Ridge Museum. Uh, and. The museum opened on July 1st, 2013 as a legacy project of the 150th anniversary. Uh, much as the peace light of 1938 marked the 75th anniversary, the new museum is kind of an unusual combination. It's the result of a long-standing partnership between the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Gettysburg and the local Adams County Historical Society. The historic building was built in 1832 to house the Lutheran Seminary and was witness to the conflict in 1863. Today it houses the Gettysburg Seminary Ridge Museum and the building itself is the main artifact and the basis for the museum's exhibition entitled Voices of Duty and Devotion. 
The museum tells three stories, all of them directly related to the building. The first day of the battle begins with the iconic cupola where General John Buford and his Signal Corps officer surveyed the landscape and established a Union strategy, and it's still a great view of the battlefield. Uh, we commissioned artist Dale Galland uh, to do murals to create a mini cyclorama experience of the first day, the morning, midday, afternoon, and evening, accompanied by maps, timelines, artifacts, and personal stories that tell what happened uh, that day. At the end of the day, on July 1st, the building was occupied by Confederates and already in use as a field hospital for the wounded. So our second story is the care of the wounded. Within the museum's walls, an estimated 600 patients, their doctors and nurses, dealt with the shocking aftermath of a three-day battle that left an estimated 50,000 casualties of dead and wounded. The last theme deals with issues of faith and freedom. Uh, the co conflict was not new to the seminary in, in the Gettysburg community in 1863. Adams County, where Gettysburg is located, is situated on the border of the Mason-Dixon line and played a role in underground railroad activities that involved white residents as well as the town's free black community. At least 70 citizens of Adams County proudly served in the U.S. Colored Troops uh, organized in 1863 following the Emancipation Proclamation. Both seminary professors and students faced moral questions about the sinfulness of slavery, as did most denominations and many local individuals. A war of words preceded the guns and cannons. Seminary Ridge is uniquely situated at the intersection of these two ideas, faith and freedom. There are two ideas that have enormous power in how we define ourselves as, as Americans, and yet each of them um, put together create a lot of conflict, as they still do in our contemporary society. So each of the stories the museum tells is important to understanding the Civil War, but I really think that its main contribution is going to be new scholarship and deeper public understanding about these ideas of faith and freedom as they were understood in the 19th century. Um, we talked about how to engage people and participation. So when the uh, museum was being designed, um, there was an interactive station with a computer and no idea what the content was going to be. It was a tabula rasa. <laughs> I mean, one of the suggestions was perhaps doing ser um, lectures from the seminary. We Nix that one. Um, so we wanted to engage visitors to understand the complexities of history rather than to look at pat answers. And this inter interactive, um, I, I have to say I was reading History of Religion that I came up with this concept of dilemmas, which are different than choices <laughs> uh, or even uh, right or wrong answers. Um, so the dilemmas are based on the real life experiences of people who you meet in the exhibit, Reverend Schmucker, Daniel Alexander Payne, Thaddeus Stevens, a Quaker family, and African Americans. It's structured as a narrative, so the dilemma is posed, and then three options are presented. And the important thing about dilemmas is that you have to have choices that are all, not one right and wrong, but all act actually plausible choices. And dilemmas are about two rights, two wrongs, and you have to make a choice, and that's something that 
people in every age face, but certainly the 19th century had plenty of examples. Uh, so for example, uh, uh, Samuel Simon Schmucker was the president of the seminary. He was an outspoken critic of slavery. Uh, he married uh, his second wife, who was from Virginia and a slave-owning family. And by marriage, he became a slave owner. What to do? So the three choices we give them is to continue to hold them as slaves because his wife was in poor health, having just given birth to a child and needed help, um, to free them immediately, or to indenture them for a set amount of time. Well, in effect and in actuality, and then it goes on to tell you in the narrative of what he did, um, and it was to indenture them. Um, I, one of my, um, at one point we had a group of reenactors who, uh, white reenactors, who sat and discussed for a half an hour in that room the dilemma of an African-American who lives in Gettysburg and whether he should flee to Canada for, to safety, because his home is being invaded, stay or join the USCT and fight for a country that had not been particularly supportive of his race. Um, and they sat and, and talked about that for a long time. So that's adults. What we discovered was, one question we had was, what about school groups? And in fact, it turns out that young people are really engaged by complexity. And I think that we often underestimate and give them two simple things. So the kids spend a lot of time on it. And they're, again, socialized to complexity. They're looking at three different things. They are facing different ideas. So that was a really interesting thing to see that it worked for both adults and children. Um, the last um, exhibit, or the last room in the, um, at, the, at, the, at the museum, encourages visitors to make the con connection between the Battle of Gettysburg and the long struggle for freedom in America. So this mural is in a room uh, adjacent to an audio reading of the Gettysburg Address. So those are the words that people are hearing. And you can see that it goes from the battlefield all the way to the inauguration um, of Barack Obama. To begin with, the, uh, the designers had imagined that there would be a bench in front of this mural and that people would sit down and contemplate. And I thought, mm, we're not such a contemplative <laughs> society. And having gone through this very emotional, emotionally charged museum, I really felt that just sitting there looking at a mural was not enough. And so what we added was a talkback. And the museum exhibit ends with this question, what do you think is the unfinished work for freedom? And so far, we have collected thousands of responses. And Josh will be talking more about those responses. Um, but it's, it's not really the end. It's the beginning of what I think and hope that the museum will continue to have larger conversations here and elsewhere about ideas and dilemmas that people face today. Uh, I want to mention the importance of question, because um, this was kind of an add-on to the exhibit at the last minute, and it's one of those back-of-the-envelope things. So they say, well, what question should we ask? And I thought, well, you know, Lincoln is kind of a paraphrase of Lincoln, and what do you think is the unfinished work for freedom? And I thought to myself, thank goodness we didn't have a lot of time, because I probably would have taken out my curatorial editorial pen and said, well, that's too long. Let's shorten it and just say, what is the unfinished work for freedom? And once it was up, I realized how important it was to be asking, what do you think? And 
that in itself, I think, has prompted more response than if it was just the, the, the without that. And so that invitation to participate is really, really important. So since July 2013, visitors have left thousands of comments. Uh, and I, I think uh, we estimate that maybe about 10% of visitors actually leave a comment. But I can tell you that 100% of visitors that walk in that room read the <laughs> notes that other people have left. Um, I think, again, their words tell a modern-day story of both shared beliefs and divided views. Uh, and I want to give you a few examples. Um, so these were from very early on. Uh, one thing we noticed right away was the museum opened uh, right in July 18, uh, 2013, right after the Supreme Court decision about gay marriage. There has been a steady and um, evolving <coughs> conversation about gay marriage. So uh, gay marriage in all states, we all must all accept responsibility and personal vision for our own and others, each other's freedom equal rights and the ability of the disabled to move from one state to another with their benefits intact, to limit government control of our lives, only then will we be truly free. Freedom of religion, not from religion, this freedom brings all the others and the response, but what if God did not give you faith? Shouldn't you be free to doubt? So this is pretty heavy duty stuff. And um, I have to say, the uh, we were amazed how much people actually struggle to answer the question and engage in the question. And one of our, my favorites um, that the staff noticed was down in one corner, at a, at a shorter person wrote in a child's handwriting was, um, baseball isn't just for boys. So I mean, this is taking a big idea, bringing it right down, personalizing it, but really uh, being able to make a statement. Um, Josh helped us put together this little word cloud for some of the early things um, because I think um, it's interesting to see what people w came out of this. We talk about religion uh, pretty openly, and so religion has been one of the major themes of this, which is kind of an unusual thing in a museum. Uh, but I want to mention one thing, which is that we, before we opened um, we did a survey of people who visited Gettysburg, and we asked them about their interest in our three themes, the military part, the, the um, um, care of the wounded, and religion. And we asked two different questions. One said religion, one used faith. Well, religion and faith were dead last in their interest. Um, religion, the last, and then faith a little bit uh, higher than that. Uh, and yet, that's what we asked people what they would be interested in. They didn't identify that, but when they're in the museum, this is obviously very much on their mind and something that they're very engaged in. So I, I think we still have questions about what, what that means. Um, I think that um, one comment from a visitor says it briefly but eloquently. Uh, this is my, my all-time favorite. You do not always have to agree with each other. You may not like how I feel, and I may not like how you feel, but this is why all of these men died for our rights to agree or disagree, God bless. So in a sort of the space of a tweet, this person had taken the entire 
museum and put it into that post-it note, which is an incredible document of how our visitors are actually using history and making history themselves. Um, so as the museum continues an ongoing dialogue with its visitors, we really hope to learn more, and uh, we're delighted that we're able to um, be getting some of this information from some outside analysis. Uh, but I, I think it's sort of this last minute thing that we put in has turned out to be one of the really central experiences for visitors that everyone talks about. So um, we're, we're glad we did it, but also interested in looking at what more can we learn about this. And you mentioned Ferguson. Uh, we keep these, I should mention the methodology that we are doing, which is because we saw that people were making all these connections to contemporary issues, uh, we started collecting them. And so we put them six on a page, Xerox them, digitize them, and we're keeping the originals as well. And each one has an, a, I was a curator in a former life, so everyone has a distinct number that you could go back and find. Um, <laughs> Uh, but we're also, and we're keeping them month by month. So in the future, someone can go back and say what was going on, what were the headlines, and what were people talking about, and seeing how that changes over time. And I can tell you that last August, Ferguson popped up um, right away. So it is interesting. It, it is a way for us to learn about our visitors as well as for them to learn. I'll turn it over to Josh to tell more about what we are learning. All right. Thanks, Barbara. Is set up. Okay, <laughs> so I am Josh. I'm Josh Howard, and I'm going to be talking about um, both of these sites that we've mentioned. I'm going to be talking primarily about, well, all about, Seminary Ridge Museum and Women's Rights uh, National Historic Historical Park in Seneca Falls. And everything I'm talking about has to do with these talkback boards. And th these are the two um, relatively small pieces of these two museums that I'm going to be talking about. Um, this one over here, and I'll go into much more detail about the question, where they are and things like that, but I wanted to kind of get the question, you know, forefront in your mind. So at Women's Rights, the question is, what will it be like when men and women are truly equal? And at Seminary Ridge, we've just talked about, uh, what do you think is the unfinished work for freedom? And where am I coming from with this? I am primarily coming at this uh, from a visitor studies approach. I'm really interested in what visitors are bringing with them to these museums, how are they interacting with the museum, but what, what's in their head, what's going on in their head, and how can we figure out how to better talk about, to, to speak with them. Um, so there's all these different ways to get at visitors, to get at visitors through visitor studies. You know, some of you are probably very familiar with them. You know, you can go at it from a real technical way of questionnaires, focus groups, things like that. You can go through observational data. And what I'm calling informal data is kind of where I'm coming from, and that's the, the literature that I'm building out of, is these ethnographic approaches, building through um, visitor comment books and some approaches that people have with that, and then these talkback boards, which there's surprisingly very little about out there. Um, we've already, I didn't know you were using the photo, so I that's wanted okay. to throw the photo in again to show you what it looked like up close, um, give you an idea of what the talkback board is and how it functions. So these are kind of like the most basic, simple um, advantages, and I didn't want to use disadvantages, I wanted to use challenges of talkback boards, how you can um, really envision them as a tool of visitor studies. 
So advantages, large sample size. You can get thousands upon thousands of post-it notes of these small responses, very small responses, but really rich responses, thousands of them very, very quickly. And it costs about as much as it takes to put up a whiteboard and buy a stack of post-it notes. Um, I've put reduces researcher bias. And what I mean by that is that there's still gonna be bias. You still have visitor studies bias here, but a little bit less than if you are doing like a clipboard survey or if you're doing some type of a focus group or something like that. Again, responses less mediated. Um, visitors are very, you know, you can look at this. They're very alone in this room. They're, it's a very contemplative space. It can be a contemplative space as opposed to if they're being approached by a researcher with a clipboard asking them all these questions. Uh, they get to actually think about it in their own head for as long as they want, for as short as long as they want and then put down the response if they so choose. And similarly, you can ask all kinds of different questions with these talkback boards that you might not be comfortable asking someone face-to-face -face, or that might just be really hard to talk to someone face-to-face -face without a whole lot of time. So you can ask all these different things. Um, challenges, well, the number one challenge is that because, these, because the visitors are given this contemplative personal space, um, it then becomes anonymous responses. You know, Some people do choose to sign them, but still, you're not gonna know any demographics of these responses. You're not gonna know who's writing these things down, anything like that. Um, ephemeral meaning that once the board is full and a person in the museum, such as Barbara, takes down the responses and catalogs them and such, um, and so on and so forth, the board is gone forever. That moment in time of what the board looked like is, is immediately gone and you lose that aspect of the board. That physical space does matter. You can see in responses where people are responding to other responses on the board, but once you take them down, you don't know where they were before. So it's a challenge um, with interactivity. Um, let's see, anything else about that? Here's the biggest advantage. This is kind of the, the big part of the argument and the big part of the rest of this presentation as I just breeze through dozens of, uh, of post-it notes is that talkback boards are different from all these other ways of interacting with visitors because you can get a glimpse of what I'm calling the psychological, subjective, and or introspective perceptions of museum visitors. You can get into that brain space. You can get into what they are feeling outside of the museum walls and what they're bringing into the museum walls within their own head. Um, this is also, in connection with that, I think this study of talkback wars is very much so visitor-centered visitor studies as opposed to exhibit-centered visitor studies. A lot of visitor studies, your main goal is, well, is my exhibit good or not? <laughs> you know, does it work? Um, this is more interested in who are these people? Like, what are they thinking? What are they doing here? What, what are, what are, what's important to them? And I think this can really get at that very cheaply and I don't want to say easily, but it is pretty easy to put up the board and then to take down these responses and think about them. Um, to give you a quick data about this, why I'm saying this is the case, is when you look at museum comment books, everybody knows what a comment book is. You know, you have the, the little book at the end of the exhibit, people anonymously write things down. In those books, approximately 90% of those responses, a little bit more than 90% of responses to comment books, are about the museum itself. They're about the museum experience. They're about the museum environment. With talkback boards, hmm. about 90% are about this, are about these other things, these more, you know, these bigger ideas, these thoughts, these processes that people are going through. So that said, 
I'm going to churn through some of my results from Women's Rights and then some from Seminary Ridge. So again, this is what we're looking at, at uh, Women's Rights in Seneca Falls. You go through, how many people have been to Women's Rights? I should probably ask that. Has anybody been to this museum? Okay, well, um, so you're gonna have to really imagine what it looks like then. So um, when you go into this museum, you go upstairs and there's this exhibit space and it's actually on, well, it was. I just learned that it's um, since been taken down by construction crew after being there for 20 years. Um, you go through the exhibit space and kind of a loose fashion. It's not really that linear, but it's against the back wall. So visitors have seen a significant chunk of the museum by the time they get there to see what will it be like when men and women are truly equal. You have sheets of paper down there. You have pencils. And the idea, it's not post-it notes like some of your The idea is you put them on those little wooden things across the way. So how did I approach this? This is my more um, qualitative approach. So women's rights so far, I have more of a qualitative approach, a more ethnographic approach, and then Seminary Ridge is a more quantitative approach. Um, and that's mostly just, just due to practicality for now, for now. So how do I do, how do I approach this women's rights stuff? Um, looking at every single response, reading every response, and you're starting to see these themes that people are saying, these, these things, that, these commonalities that people have, and I started pulling out these themes. Um, time data, meaning that I sampled post-it notes, or these responses, from 1993 to the present. And out of practicality, because they just didn't have them when I was there, um, there's nothing from 1995 to 2000, or to 1995 to 1999, but Here's the sampling distribution. I'm, like I said, I'm a stats person in a former life, so I have to show graphs and <laughs> apologize. Um, but I, I pulled out uh, 1,257 responses, um, and this is the distribution. Relatively evenly distributed, distributed uh, 1993 and 1994, and then five-year intervals after that. So what are, what are visitors saying? All right, what are visitors saying about this question? What will it be like when men and women are truly equal? The A number one response that you see the vast majority of people responding with is that it is going to be a great thing. It's going to happen, and it's going to be wonderful. And so there's these five different um, sub-themes of how it's going to happen, why it's going to happen, and so on and so forth. So I wanted to actually share some of these. This is what I'm kind of calling the triumphal group, um, the energetic group. Um, there will be more women, there will be more women being who they want to be and not what men want them to be. So this is the, the most common response. You see this, this energy here. Uh, another one, um, a genderless world, this, this desire that gender as a concept will, will just go away. Um, it can only be equal when distinction between man and woman is blurred, if not destroyed. Um, this is another very, very, very common response. Another one is, I'm calling this kind of removing the stigma of, quote, women's work. Um, and this is actually one where it's kind of turned on its head because it's uh, when my, quote, stay-at-home husband stops being out of place on the playground with our children. So you see this is another very, very common response. Um, again, this is actually similar to the one that you mm -hmm. mentioned just a minute ago. I'm a tomboy and I get treated equally. Don't ever assume it's wrong for a girl to want to play with a stink bomb or for a guy to play with a Barbie. So again, this is one that is presumably from a young child and you can see these great responses of all ages. Um, another one, this is a very long one, very, very long one. There are, um, 
I call it this one like economic and practical. There is a very strong theme of equal pay for equal work, of uh, things like that in all these responses. So equal pay for equal work, more opportunity to break the glass ceiling in the boardroom in government, stereotypes of meeting average. This person, you know, there's a lot of people that just make these bullet lists of everything that's wrong with society now and what needs to change. And then finally, this last group of um, it's going to change and it's going to change soon is there is a religious sub-theme that goes through some of these responses. Not a terribly large number, but there are a lot, and almost all of them are Catholic, presumably because of the region, but the Catholic Church will ordain uh, women as priests and the Southern Baptists will ordain women as lead pastors. One thing that I find really interesting about women's rights is there is this connection between like humor and cynicism in this place. So many responses are good answers, like they're real answers, but they're, they're, they're being a little cheeky about it. So yeah, this, is, this one's about fantasy football, a little bit sarcastic, but still a very valid response. And then ones like this, I won't have to choose between being an ineffective person who is good and a, quote, bitch who gets things done. <laughs> so you see a lot of these responses that want change. You can tell they want change, but there is a, little, a lot of cynicism there. So that's group one. Group one is these people who see there's gonna be change, they want change, and so on. There's another group, though, who basically reject the question in a way, where the question is worded, what will it be like when men and women are truly equal? There are a lot of people who say, well, I don't necessarily want them to be equal. Um, that, that isn't necessarily something that we want. So the first group, though, is actually the group who uh, who sees this as not inevitable whatsoever. They are incredibly cynical and believe that that will never, ever, ever happen. And then there's these other ones that I'll march through real quick. So, and uh, my text changed color. But anyways, yeah, so don't you mean if? So questioning the, uh, the rejecting the question out of hand. Um, another one where you, uh, they reject this gender binary question, reject the idea that you're talking about men and women. And this is happening, I'll talk about this in a minute, but there's more and more people um, as we move forward in time, who are rejecting the concept of this men-women binary, saying that this is much more complicated than that. Um, this one might be a little hard to read, but a lot of people are saying um, there is a need for difference, that equality might not be good because we need men and women to be different to have a functioning society. I'm not sure that true equality equals happiness. Even if we're especially split on household chores or work outside of the home, we still have undesirable tasks. I think what's more important is that everyone has the right to have equality in their own house. If you're happy at home, then you're more likely to be happy outside of the home. So you can see where they still want some sort of a difference. It's not perfect now, but they don't want these, these divisions to go away entirely. Um, and then there's some who, uh, who think that, that equality is already here, that we're just, you know, like teasing a little bit. And so the initial response is, is what makes you think we're not equal already? I'm not complaining. And this is where we get into the interactivity. As you can see, somebody else wrote at the bottom, that's just because you're probably a man. So, <laughs> so that's another good one. Um, this is a much smaller group, much smaller group. Those first two groups are huge. People actually directly interacting with the question and answering it. There are smaller groups that do directly talk about the museum environment, and there are a smaller group who directly comment on current events at the time. So I've got this data from the past 20 years. So this is one, um, black singers will stop attacks on women like in Central Park, New York City, not videotape them. This is in reference to the Puerto Rican Day attacks. This one's from uh, July 2000. So you see these moments crop up in these responses. Um, 
You have ones like this. This is one that's about the museum environment because it's about other people. Women will not write stupid, uneducated answers to the question of equality as the ones I've just had the displeasure of reading. Um, and there's a handful of others where you see people commenting. There's some really, really good ones where you see people say um, things like, I don't think men should be allowed in this museum. They ruined the museum space. So you see the ones like that. <laughs> and then what I'm really trying to tease out right now, this is the part of the women's rights analysis that's at the moment a little bit unfinished. I'm still trying to really get, get it together. But this is kind of the preliminary results is change over time. So in 1993-1994, that, that subsample, almost everything is talking about um, women's rights and is in terms of women, right? That word, women. Um, and that's like the direct set. There are nine, nine from 1993 that directly mention the term women's rights. For the rest of the sample, for the next 15 years after that, there's only three. So you see there's three times as many in that two-year sample as there are in that 15-year sample. So I think that's somewhat significant. And then you also see um, there is some mention, very, very, I think just one or two in 93, 94, that are about um, LGB rights. And I'm intentionally leaving out the T because there's no mention of any, any trans issues at all until much later. So this is the only response from the early sample. This is 1994. Gene technology will allow women to fuse X chromosomes. Men will die out. Lesbians will be the fittest to survive. So that's from 1994. And you're seeing... Um, and you're starting to see the, like, that one's, that one's kind of cheeky. That one's pretty funny. And you're starting to see as you go forward in time, this one's from 2002, where it gets more, once, once LGBT, LGBT rights becomes like this national issue, you're starting to see people um, put more serious responses, you know? So I will marry my beautiful partner and no one will think it's a sin that we are both female. We'll raise beautiful boys who have no ingrained sense of entitlement. So again, you're moving forward in time. Gay marriage is becoming more of a reality, more of a possibility, and you're starting to see these responses crop up. And then these, um, the very first mention of any trans, anything transgender at all is in 2006, the one on top, there will be a transgender section in this museum. And in 2014, uh, when all women identified folks, regardless of being trans, et cetera, can be fully included in the feminist movements, women are women, anatomy doesn't dictate gender. I've put these in here because um, this is an example of where museum staff can see these responses and build this back into the museum. So this is a, vis a visitors-centered visitor studies, but you can get a lot out of this as the museum director yourself. Um, I think once you see the result, this 2006 result, museum staff would start would need to start saying we should probably start thinking about at least doing something different with our exhibit to bring that in. So. Um, that's women's rights. I know I rushed through it, but I wanted to get all those through. It's women's rights. So now, Seminary Ridge. All right, changing gears, changing back a little. Now let's get a little quantitative. Um, what do you think is the unfinished work for freedom? Remind you what it looks like. Get back into Seminary Ridge. We're back in, we're in Gettysburg now. We're out of Seneca Falls. So how are we approaching this? This is a different approach because we have had time to actually catalog them all, to actually transcribe them all, to actually code them all in a very specific way. Um, I first went through with this pilot data uh, in July 2013. We had 497 um, post-it notes uh, from July 2013. Each post-it note was then coded based on what people were saying. Okay, 
And so that resulted in 593 total themes. Most post-it notes got one theme, but there are a few that got a lot. So I give this example right here. Somebody wrote, quote, to educate the American public on the difference between a democracy and a theocracy. So that would get coded as education, religion, government. I know this is a really, you know, there are some, I'll get into it, there are some flaws in kind of this method, but it is a different way of looking at this data. Another example, this was coded as just religion. The work was already finished through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We must, we individually must accept what he did in turn, put our faith and trust in him as our Lord and Savior, then you will be free. So this one was coded as just pure. This is a religious answer. This is religion right here. And you can see down in the corner, that's Barbara's uh, fancy coding system down there in the corner. So we can actually go and pull out that one. Another example, two examples real quick. Um, coded equality and LGBT to end all forms of discrimination and ensure full equality for all, including the LGBT community everywhere. And then activism slash history, question authority, it is your right, remember Kent State. So we have all of these types of responses I'm trying to code. And then here's the actual, um, the actual data from this pilot study, this pilot study. Uh, the top 10 themes, most of these you would expect um, to be honest, based on what the museum is about, LGBT is, is quite high, quite, not quite a large number of responses. This is a museum that's about the Civil War and about religion, <laughs> and you've got about 3.5% of all visitors are responding to LGBT. Um, religion on top, as you ex would expect. Uh, and then I have to bring up number two was either some type of conservative political response or something that was blatantly anti-Barack Obama. Um, this is probably because in that mural that mm -hmm. Barbara uh, showed in her slides, there is an image of Obama in that mural. And the suspicion is that, I guess, conservative-minded, some conservative-minded people would see that and immediately turn to the talkback board and write something bad about Obama. So that's what was happening there. Um, the general result here is that about 50% of all respondents responded to the question, uh, this question about an abstract concept, about freedom. You know, this abstract, hard to pin down thing. They responded with another abstraction of their own. You know, they responded in terms, in terms of religion and theology. They re they responded in terms of peace, um, tolerance, all these kind of kind of hazy things. Then about 15% um, or so responded. The unfinished work of freedom is based in human rights in some way. So LGBT is the biggest one of that. There's tons of others that have to do with um, racial equality, so on and so forth. And then there's about 20% who respond that it's government. We need to do something with the government in order to, uh, to, to finish freedom, I guess you could say. So coming from July 2013, I have a lot more data after that. Um, for the next uh, however many months that is, um, that's how many responses that have been cataloged and how many that have been coded and how many have been analyzed. So that gives you a sense, and as you would expect, you know, the January months, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, not, not the best, not the best, and that's okay, that's okay. So we still have those responses, and then it peaks back up in the summer and spring. Um, I added a few new categories with this larger data because it's important to know that first set, there are a lot of people who don't even answer the question whatsoever. They would just write down, um, impeach Obama, put it on the board. It's not answering the question, really, not really. Um, so added in some, some new data here where it's, did they answer the question or not? And then three important things. Are they responding to current events? Are they referencing religion in any way? This is a religious museum. Are they talking about religion? And then this is a history museum. Are they actually talking about history? Are they talking about the past? So the overall results from that are here. Um, 
pretty simple table. These are just basic percentages. About 50% of all respondents are directly answering the question, all right? There's a lot of just noise up there, but about 50% are directly answering the question. Signed is like, all right, 10% of all visitors put some type of identifying signature on these responses. These are meant to be anonymous responses, and 10% of all people are publicly claiming their idea and putting it on the wall. I think that's another important thing. Surprisingly, only this might be part of the, the board being a little bit ephemeral. About 5% are directly interacting with someone, but again, that's only 5% that we can tell are interacting after the fact, you know, after they're taken down. And then you can see the rest. 10% are referencing current events, 15% are referencing religion, about 6 or 7% are actually directly referencing history in some way. Um, if you look at the themes for everything based on out of um, all the people who actually answered the question, then this is what this is what comes out of it. Um, the consistent message here, though, is throughout all of these, is that somehow, in some way, faith in God is somehow related to freedom. Based on these visitor responses, that's what is coming out of these people. That somehow, faith and freedom are these connected things. Um, again, from all these, these categories stay consistent. About 50% of people are responding with some type of abstraction. About 15% are talking about human rights, and about 20% are talking about the government. And then there's 15% where you have absolutely no idea what they're going to be talking about. It's something completely off the wall sometimes. So a lot of these you might, you might expect. Again, LGBT pops up as number 10. So thematic shortcomings that I wanted to talk about real quick with this approach. Here's three responses that are very complex. Um, that are that you could code it in many different ways. Um, all of these uh, have something to do with race. All of them have something to do with well, not all. They have something to do with conservatism. They're very complicated, and that does it kind of expose the limits of this thematic shortcoming. So I wanted to show these, and you can read them as I'm talking. That like thematic approach is great. It's wonderful, but you still need this ethnographic reading. You still need to go in and actually read every response, internalize them, think about them, think about what the visitor was thinking when they wrote this, think about what they really mean by what they're writing, by what they're saying. That any sort of just pure quantifying, simple like grouping of themes, it helps, it helps. It helps point you in the direction of where people are thinking, but it's not any sort of replacement for this ethnographic approach at all. So again, lessons and comparisons from these two different, very different museums and these two very similar talkback boards. Um, again, Seminary Ridge, there are two types of answers. There are people who respond with some type of theoretical abstraction, and there are people who are responding that are very goal-oriented, that the unfinished work of freedom is this very specific thing that we can change in our society. It might be related to human rights, it might be related to government, but there is something out there that we can change and fix. And women's rights, though, Almost everybody, over 90% are responding with some type of a goal-oriented response. That in order to get women, men and women to be, quote, truly equal, um, there is something you can do to fix that. There is something you can do to change that. Um, to attempt to explain why that is, so why are we seeing 50% of the people at Seminary Ridge respond with this kind of abstract way, is I think it possibly is because at Seminary Ridge, you're asking people to simply to state what it takes to get us to a better future. It's all about the question formation again. So it's um, what is the un what do you think is the unfinished work for freedom? Right. So think it's basically think about what it takes to get us to the better future. As opposed to women's rights, there's kind of a two part question. Asked you um, imagine first, you need to imagine a future where men and women are truly equal. 
and then tell us what it'll take us to what what it takes to get us there. So it's kind of that two part. So this first one where you're asking people, what will it take to get us to this abstract term? A lot of people are responding in kind of a slightly abstract way. Whereas at women's rights, it says, well, imagine this con this semi-abstract, but really this concrete thing where men and women are equal. Imagine that. Now tell me, what is it going to take? What do you think it's going to take us to get there? And so then readers do speak to that imagined future because I think they're, they're envisioning it. Um, suggestions of talkback boards. So how can you use this in a museum? What is, what is the usefulness? What is the, the practicality here? Um, if you are really wanting to know if a museum is, is effective, if you want to know if visitors are getting anything out of your exhibit whatsoever, I think that these abstract, quote, big idea questions can really, really work well. Um, if, you are, if your whole goal is to talk about the concept of freedom throughout your whole museum and you get to the end, you ask a, you ask a question about freedom, I think you can get a good sense of what visitors are taking away from your exhibit. If your goal, what I have here is, if the goal is to assess visitor mindset, um, meaning what's in their head, what are they thinking about in terms of, this, of these, these ideas like at women's rights, then you can ask them to, to think about a future, think about a hypothetical future, and, and possibly even challenge their assumptions. And I think that's what the visitor's right question does here. Um, let's see here. Oh, one other thing, this is more another more practical thing. Um, about response length. I think there might even be possibly questions about what can you really learn from these like short responses. I mean, how many words can you really get on a post-it note, seriously? Like maybe 25 or something like that. At women's rights, um, I noticed over time, this is the average response length in terms of words, the number of words that are on each response at women's rights. Well, you see that huge decline, right? It goes from 20 to an average of 20 words in 93, 94, all the way down to about 11 in 20, 2010 to 2014. And at first I panicked. I was like, oh my God, talkback boards are just dying. Nobody's gonna respond to these things in like five or 10 years. But what's actually going on is, um, I don't think I have a picture of, they changed the size of their card. That's all, <laughs> that's all it was. That's all it was. In 93, 94, if you look at the images, all they're doing is they're taking pieces of paper, they're cutting them in half, and they're just leaving them up there. And you know, as of, I guess not today since it's gone, but uh, as of a year ago, um, they were using things about the size of post-it notes. You know, they were using very small slips of cards. So I think that's really um, where it's going. Oh, and then I guess I did throw that data in there. Up in the top corner, that's the average length of the Seminary Ridge uh, responses throughout the entire time frame. 8.63 words per response. So again, if you're thinking about talk high boards and how to really use them, I would like to encourage using slightly larger than post-it notes because um, they do get much richer responses. Again, it depends on your goal. It depends on what you want to get out of it. But using larger slips of paper. People actually write on them. They actually will write you really lengthy responses. So there's that as well. Um, concluding thoughts, kind of some last little things about what I'm thinking about, where to go with this. Trying to tease out these bigger <laughs> ideas of deeper engagement from these museum visitors. Um, getting at this idea of historical empathy. Are visitors hitting that deep level of engagement with these ideas, that deep level of thought, of combining thought and feeling there? And I think you can tease that out with a, a question that is worded specifically to tease that out. So if you ask them actually about emotion, um, instead of asking them about visualizing the future and these more practical terms, um, how, how did you feel about blank, whatever, whatever is at the museum? How does this make you feel? How does this make you think and feel? 
um, or ask them another, like basically a role playing question. Like, what do you think? Um, if you, you use the example of an enslaved person earlier, you know, you could even possibly even ask them, what do you think it felt like to be enslaved in this time period? Any qu questions like that can really get them in that mindset, potentially getting at something like historical empathy. Um, another one is with the Seminary Ridge data. The people who actually answered the question tell us a lot more about visitors than those who didn't. But again, don't throw out bad responses. Like my instinct at first was, is if you see all these ones that just say impeach Obama, just be like, well, these people aren't answering the question, Pfft, throw away. Um, but it tells you a lot about your museum. Like these quote bad responses give you kind of these clues of what visitors are taking away. And then finally, is even though I've rambled about visitor studies and I use the term respondents very often about visitors, these are visitors and guests. You know, these aren't just respondents at museums. These are visitors, these are guests, these are people that are coming to experience history, so on and so forth. And remember, no matter how like not invasive you are, there's always gonna be people who don't care and who aren't gonna respond. <laughs> so that's all I have. Thank you very much. <laughs> We have some time for questions, comments, other experiences that you've had. You've got the floor now. <laughs> so talk back to us. <laughs> How frequently do you clear your board? Well, at the Seminary Ridge Museum, we specifically decided to do it by the month. So if it's full, we put it, but we keep them all together as a month's worth. So that's why we can actually look at it. Uh, if it gets way too full, um, we start taking some down just to make room for more, uh, more uh, depending on how busy we are. Um, but we like to leave a few up. But at the end of the month, we take them all down, and then it starts fresh again. Women's rights was about the same. About the same. Back in the back? Yeah, we're just kind of going off of that. I'm curious about kind of the, the lag time between, you know, getting the responses and then making any kind of meaningful uh, reaction to it. So, so you kind of have to balance between having a knee-jerk reaction to what somebody puts up to actually having a meaningful response but not delaying too much, such as Ferguson. Some museums don't want to talk about it, and then it seems like you're not engaged. So I'm just curious about your thoughts about how to kind of gauge that timing. Well, I, I'll just say that from at the Seminary Ridge Museum, um, because the frontline staff are the ones that are actually monitoring it and taking them off, they're reading them on a daily basis. So that's getting into their heads right away. Um, and um, and then the, the, but the other piece of it, of looking at it more longitudinally, you don't learn, the, I mean, they're, they're going to be very similar going forward. And it's, it's maybe a year, you know, mm -hmm. six months gives you a better sense of that, you know, if you're going to analyze it. Uh, so I think there's different ways to take that uh, off. I mean, I'll tell you one thing that was really interesting to us was um, that, and this is just you know from observation, that in the spring when we had a lot of school groups, all of a sudden as I was putting these on the pages, I'm thinking, wow, there are all these things about peace and war, which were from school groups because that was our, the majority of our um, our visitation. Who knew that? like fourth graders that this is a major issue for them but you know it makes sense they probably have family parents that are in the military etc and so that was a you know that was a kind of a blip that came up right away and we could see that so that tells you a lot right there well and what I what I really I, th I think you hit part of the nail on the head there too is that 
because you have your frontline staff pulling them down, mm-hmm. you can and entering them. <laughs> and uh, an exhibit, it's really hard for an exhibit to stay nimble, but it's really easy for personal services to stay nimble. Mm-hmm. So you can have the exhibit informing the personal services. Mm-hmm. And so, so taking them out and cataloging them and, and reading every one of them, um, then, then your staff can react with real you know, live programming that's happening. Or you can start planning out new live programming. Mm-hmm. But I also think that when we start looking at the longitudinal data, um, you can start anticipating. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we know there is going to be uh, another racial bias incident with police. It's, it's one of those things that our, our experience over the past decade has told us. We can look at how visitors reacted to the previous ones Mm-hmm. to know how we might be able to meet that mm-hmm. immediately after it happens. Mm-hmm. And actually, I've been working with the Seminary Ridge Museum uh, and the current director to, to actually put in place a plan for not if, but when a Confederate monument in Gettysburg gets tagged with graffiti so that they are ready to meet that, meet that with dialogue and, and a meaningful engagement when it happens, not if. So it's, it's about anticipation there as well. Mm-hmm. In the back? Um, with a digital library, so my exhibitions are in an online environment, and I've been trying to imagine how I could incorporate some of these things into um, engagement with that audience. And we all know the dangers of comment sections and internet trolls. Do you guys have any thoughts about um, this sort of engagement in an online environment? The most success, I've looked at a lot of different online, not necessarily online exhibits, but museums with online components that have tried to do this. And the number one way I've seen it being successful is through Twitter, is through Twitter hashtags. And somehow incorporating the Twitter hashtag feed back into the exhibit um, again. So not keep, not relegating it to a comment section of a web page, but having some type of a live stream built in. Is, that's, that's how I've seen it as most successful. Otherwise, you just wind up with tons of trolls saying horrible things, and that's really it. Okay, back to history. Um, And Josh, I noted that engaging with the past is maybe it's really not there at the top. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you're saying, John, it's really not about history. So, and Barbara, you pointed out that this is really the tough part of public history, Mm -hmm. is how do you make the past relevant Let me, uh, years ago when I worked in Minnesota, we did a lot of uh, audience research before we opened. And one of the things that the audience research showed, which we did not want to hear at all, was that past, present, and future are all in play. And as historians, we go first to the past and think that's most important. Most of our visitors are in the present, and younger people are very interested in the future. So if you want to talk about the past and, you st- and you're only willing to engage in the past, you're only going to have other historians 
and people that are interested in history, which is the minority of the population. If you're willing to engage the present and then go back to the past more, and if you're looking at young people, the future is what they are interested in. It's not to say that they're not going to then go back to the past to talk about it, but their reference point is the future and the present, not the past. And so it's where you begin, not where you end. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember. It was a really, really hard lesson, um, and none of us wanted to hear it. <laughs> as, as far as skill set, too, because that's, that's, it's so hard to, to change a mindset like that. Because, I mean, a, a lot of us are traditional academic historians that started out and we go we go to the past we go to the census data we start go to the, the beginning start at the beginning for god's sake and and so this i've been struggling with this is it's there's a there's a different skill set that's that's in play here and one of the things i'm really struggling with and this is going to sound funky is that i think that the the most important thing is training curiosity in your staff so training your staff to be genuinely curious not just historian curious of, you know, what, what about the dead people, but curious about everything, about the news that's going on, about the visitors that are in front of them. And I don't know exactly how to train curiosity yet. I'm, I'm chewing at the edges of it, but I think that that's, that's one of those, and I think you can hire for it, too. Um, it's, it's a little bit tougher when your hiring authorities are, are a little bit more complicated, i.e. this arrowhead right here. Um, but for, for some of the smaller museums, you, you guys can hire for that right off the bat. You can ask, are you a creative person? And really feel out how creative they are. Um, that, I think that that's crucial. And then we, we get accused of, um, we're talking about getting rid of the content. We're not. Actually, this type of skill set requires you to have an ultimate mastery of the content mm -hmm. because you have to be able and willing to go anywhere not just where you plan to go so you got to have every card in your back pocket to play so that when a visitor comes in and talks about reproductive rights you can go there are a few content connections i can make with that I'm going to be imaginative, I'm going to be creative with it, but then I'm also going to go, okay, uh, I read that letter, and uh, I, I read that uh, part of the census, and I think I can tie that together. So you're right, it's weird. Yeah. I don't I, know how. I, I also want to share, uh, you reminded me of that, that when we, before we opened, people were going through, and some of the folks asked me, um, well, what, what do you hope to accomplish with this museum? And, you know, kind of off the top of my head, I said, well, you know, if we leave people thinking, that's really all. I'm not trying to change their mind. I'm not trying to say this was the cause of the Civil War not and, or change anyone's mind. But if they just leave thinking, that's all I really care about. And before we opened, in one of the preview tours, uh, a woman was sitting on the stairs looking a little... Um, disoriented and one of our staff members went up to her and she thought she was having maybe a physical problem or something and the woman looked at her and said what gives you the right to make me think I don't go to museums to think and we said yes we did it <laughs> so it's again what do, what is it that you hope to accomplish with people if it's to fill up their brains with facts that is not historical thinking so you know I think that's an important thing to sort of connect part of your question to thinking about all of these responses as data, making sure, I don't think the questions posed, the people responding to, were really about asking about the past. 
I mean, I, I like these mm -hmm. questions because it was very much separate from what is something that you learned somewhere mm -hmm. else behind you, you know, at some point. So it was much more sort of perspective and let's think about the future. And so thinking about sort of mm -hmm. what do mm -hmm. we take away from this? Anything else? Yes, in the back. The topic was that you cited in, these, in this study. Um, both seem to be in place for quite a long time. Um, have there been examples of topic where, where you change the questions rather frequently? What's a good time to, to do that? An average amount of time to lead them up? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't have an exact quantitative answer for that, but there are examples of. Um, What's that? Temporary yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, um, I noticed that at least one of the Sasonians, I can't remember which one, literally wheels out a, a whiteboard like about one day a week um, with a different question every time. And those, I think those are mostly just to get, just to get people talking on the spot, you know, in, in the area. They're not necessarily interested, I don't think they're interested in making any of these like long-term changes or interpretive changes. They're looking at more just the, sh the shallow level of visitor, visitor engagement, getting them to talk to staff in some sort of a way. Or, um, and I know the Smithsonian, what it actually turned into was a place for teenagers to take selfies, um, <laughs> as opposed to a place of like, quote, meaningful dialogue and things like mm -hmm. that. So, um, yeah. news, the museum in DC mm -hmm. has a kind of weird version of this talkback board where it's, the, you vote with a sticker, yes or no. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a fan of binaries. I think you should mm -hmm. break down a binary. But they changed that board out with the headlines. Mm -hmm. So they're changing and printing up a new board like weekly or bi-weekly. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think they're looking for the longitudinal data either. Mm -hmm. I did see a great example of this in Denver last year where they, there was a local, um, a local news article, newspaper article on what should the local school curriculum be. They literally ripped it out of the paper, glued it to some butcher block paper that was wrapped around a piece of plywood and stuck a bin of, pay, of markers there and just said, what do you think of this? And the number of people that I saw, I, I spent like 15 minutes in the exhibit, the number of people I saw stopping and reading the whole damned article and then leaving their comment was amazing. Um, so I think you can do this really easily and really quickly. And in a way, I, I'd like to say that I think um, design is sometimes our enemy in these kinds of things and making it seem casual, making it seem on the fly, is more inviting to people mm -hmm. to actually add things. And, and when we put this talk back board, uh, the idea was that this would be a prototype and then maybe we would do a, an, a, a computer. And I think we said, no, that would be a very different experience than actually yeah. writing something and participating. And the informality of it is actually invites, I think, more. Yeah. And, and I would argue the physicality of yeah. it as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think yep. the informality, when compared to the somewhat formality of the visitor comment book, is really mm -hmm. important too. People see the visitor comment book as, I don't know, they see it as like almost a the sacred thing. You're you're putting your name on in this museum yep. in the book forever. Um, while well, these talkback boards, they're on, in theory, temporary pieces of paper until they go into Barbara's file cabinet <laughs> <laughs> forever. But uh, yeah, they see it as more as more loose, as more open. So. Yeah. Was there one more? Yep. Um, not to be a negative Nancy. But just as a word of warning as of a talk like talk back kind of thing that I've seen at a national park, and I won't name the park, but they they, do, they try to do um, this kind of thing, but it seems to me like a like an afterthought. And so it was in a corner of the museum exhibit, like a dark corner, and mm -hmm. it was about this big, wasn't very big at all. So it's not I think if you're gonna do this, it needs to be in a pretty prominent location, it needs to be big enough 
there needs mm -hmm. to actually be post-it notes and pins out. Like, it, mm -hmm. that's just my word of caution. Like, don't, right. yeah. don't do it as an afterthought because it just seems disingenuous at that point. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a piece of it that, and I don't know how, how you communicate it, partly by the design, partly where it's in the exhibit, partly it's the question that you ask, that you're respectful of your visitors and expecting them to do something important. That you're asking them to add something. And so that re attitude of respect, I think, is extremely important. And um, we, there was another session yesterday on engagement, and one of the things that they left as the... I uh, think the thought piece was learning to listen. And I think that visitors want to be heard and the ability to actually be able to voice and be respectful of that voice is, I think, a major part of the, of the engagement that we're looking for. Um, thank you all. I think we're out of time. Thanks a lot. Thank you.